Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. Interviews con- uh, conducted over the New Books Network will also serve as a tremendous resource for online teaching and pedagogy. Today, I will be speaking with Professor Spencer Dew about his new book, The Aliites, Race and Law in the Religions of Noble Drew Ali. In this dazzling new book, Spencer Dew treats his readers to a riveting and often counterintuitive account of the interaction of law, race and citizenship in the discourses of the Moorish Science Temple and other movements inspired by Noble Drew Ali. How do theological visions of democracy serve as critiques of racism and exclusionary politics. In what ways does a notion of sovereignty as located in faith and outside history mobilize popular sovereignty to critique modern state sovereignty? What are the complicated mechanisms through which legal institutions, texts and theatres are engaged and negotiated to make space for a notion of citizenship grounded in the entanglement of law, love, and social transformation. These are among the central conceptual questions that animate this sparkling study, situated at the intersection of legal studies, African-American religion, and American Islam. Lucidly composed, theoretically charged, and discursively playful. The Aliites is sure to transform the way we look at Noble Drew Ali and his profound and complex legacy. This book will also generate important and productive conversations in various undergraduate and graduate seminars on American Islam, American religion, political studies, history, and law. Here now is my conversation with Professor Spencer Dew. Hello, Spencer. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? Great. Thank you so much, Spencer, for your time and for this wonderful book, uh, which really is operating at the intersection of, as you describe, American religious history, African-American religion, questions of race and law. And I think this book will be of tremendous interest to scholars of Islam, especially American Islam, and to those who are interested in teaching uh, American Islam and questions of race and law. This will be a phenomenal resource. So thanks so much for your time. We have a tradition of the New Books Network, Spencer, that our first question is always biographical. Could you share a bit with our listeners, A, how you became a scholar of religion, and then B, how you got to write this book? Yes. Uh, First, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, I appreciate the podcast and have listened to several episodes of it. Gee, how did I get into religious studies? I, uh, at a fairly young age, was interested in a more romantic mode of 
comparative religion, um, stuff that stuff that now I uh, stuff that now I see as as problematic uh, more than naive. Uh, the work of Joseph Campbell, for instance, was important to me in my adolescence. Uh, and as I went to college, I decided to major in religious studies in part because it was a way to do broadly comparative cultural work. Um, I, I wanted to do study abroad. I went to India for a year. Uh, I took a trip to uh, Israel. Um, yeah, so so religious studies was was in in its first sort of instantiation for me. It was a way to do this kind of um, broad culturally comparative work, right? See the world, learn about the world's peoples. Uh, that became more, um, I hope, uh, nuanced and focused and responsible as I got older. Uh, how did I get into this book? I was graduating grad school, uh, getting my PhD in June and had debt and no money and nothing in terms of immediate job prospects, but continued adjuncting. And one of the places I'd been adjuncting was St. Xavier University in Chicago. And I went to the chair of St. Xavier and I begged her for some sort of summer course because I, 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 I had to have something, um, to help pay my bills. And she said, you know, we've, we've got a, a program that I really don't like putting adjuncts in because uh, folks have not had good experiences there. Uh, and it was uh, the program working for the Chicago Police Department for, for a, a BA program for working cops. So cops would come in uh, late afternoon uh, for, I guess it was a three-hour class twice a week as part of a, a, a program uh, working toward a, a bachelor's degree. And because it was sponsored by um, St. Xavier University, which is owned and run, founded by the Sisters of Mercy, a religious order, there was a requirement for at least one religion class, which St. Xavier had been using uh, retired priests, older priests to teach, uh, you know, Christian thought, Christian theology. And, and indeed that had not been a terribly popular course offering with young working police officers. And I designed a religion and law class, uh, in which I learned a lot about religion and law. And, 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 and really the reason I'm telling this story is this, this is both my introduction to the religious movements that I call Alleyites, right? Because I had students who were coming in every day telling me stories about more Science Temple of America um, folks that they encountered uh, uh, during their police work. Um, but it's also what oriented me toward questions of law and questions of race and questions of state power and state violence and sovereignty, um, which really weren't my focus in, in, in graduate school. Graduate school, I, I wrote a, a dissertation on avant-garde novelist Kathy Acker, uh, which, which, which became my, my first academic book, um, really about the, the trope of um, Jewish writing for, for Kathy Acker her notion of what the Talmudic means. Uh, I wasn't really focused on these, uh, these larger political and social uh, questions, and they emerged out of 
uh, interactions with my police students. So that's a quick origin of the book. Terrific. And that actually gives us a good segue. Uh, uh, Spencer, I wanted to start by asking you a sort of broad question, you know, for listeners who may not be familiar, since we have a, a pretty international sort of uh, coverage, uh, could you maybe briefly describe who are the Aliites and the groups that you focus on in the book? And then uh, so, sort of the sort of the empirical uh, landscape of the of the project. And then the conceptual key sort of uh, intervention that you make in relation to connecting the questions of race and law and the way in which you look at uh, the sort of Aliite movements as uh, really uh, articulating a certain notion of citizenship, a certain notion of yearning for a particular notion of American citizenship that is so central to your project also. So basically a two-part question, who are these figures you, whose writings and all kinds of other sort of artifacts you study? Uh, and B, what is the conceptual intervention that you try to make on questions of law, race, and citizenship? So the folks that I'm calling Aliites, uh, and, and I talk about three radically diverse movements within the group, the Moorish Science Temple of America movement, and there's, and there's hundreds, thousands of Moorish Science Temple of America communities and, and individuals following their own interpretations. The Washita de Dugdamandia, similarly, there's at least scores of, of different Washita de Dugdamandia communities. I also talk about the Nuwabi and Yamasi that have had various names throughout their history. These three groups I lump under the category of Aliite because they are all deeply and explicitly indebted to the thought of the man who called himself Noble Drew Ali. He was born probably uh, around 1886, uh, died in 1929 in Chicago for those last um, four years of his life in Chicago, ran a national organization called the Moorish Science Temple of America that was predicated on teachings about both race and citizenship, like you say. First, Noble Jurali taught um, a, a primarily African-American audience, maybe an exclusively African-American audience, although it's, it's important that he's, he's in his writings and, and uh, uh, speeches speaking to, to audiences outside of that particular demographic. But he spoke to an African-American audience saying, you have in the past been called Negro, Black, and Colored. Uh, these terms are nicknames, they are oppressive labels, they're what we would call legal fictions. And by accepting those names and the consequences of those names, you were prevented from ever being a citizen of the United States of America. So he offers an alternate identity, an alternate history, uh, tells his followers that they are Moorish, they have uh, a Moorish flag, which by holding and displaying grants them full access to the rights represented by the American flag, which they should simultaneously hold and display, um, and that they are not Negro, Black, or colored. Now, this claim, this, this, this negotiation, if you will, of, of racialization, this negotiation of uh, legally enshrined racism 
simply steps uh, steps uh, steps outside the categories, right? It, it preserves the categories. Negro, black, and colored still exist, continue to exist in in Aliite thought in 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 problematic ways that I'm happy to go into in a bit. But Ali says. By by insisting upon this other identity, by insisting upon this other flag, this other nationality, as he calls it, because he doesn't like to use the, use the term race, by insisting on this other nationality, then one can have the full rights of citizenship. And this gets into the second part of your question. The full rights of citizenship are both the rights of the status, um, i.e. one is legally a full citizen under the law. But also what Ali calls specifically, quote unquote, sacred duties of citizenship, right? To be a citizen of the United States as Ali imagines it. And that, that, that term, I am a citizen of the USA, is printed on these identity cards that original uh, members of the Moorish Science Temple of America carry around with them as, as proof that they have recognized their nationality and that they have this new status and standing. But it's not just status, it's also a set of responsibilities and duties. One has to participate in this process that is citizenship. Now, what's the process of citizenship? Well, 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 well on the one hand, it's really practical stuff, right? It's politicking. It is um, voting and getting the vote out. Early Moors did a, a major voter registration drive in the African-American communities in the south side of Chicago that led to some important elections for what was then the ruling uh, Republican machine under, under Mayor Big Bill Thompson. But beyond these specific, immediate, practical, political, poll-related works of citizenship, citizenship is seen as this larger metaphysical process of aligning the society we have now with the society that Allah God intends, uh, according to Ali's theological teachings. And, and, and the quickest way to say that is this society that we live in now is not aligned with law as an ideal of justice, love, peace, etc. And the work of citizenship is to align society with law, to make society more perfect um, by being under a law that's understood as a natural law, a divine law, a law that's inherent in individuals, but a law that, 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 that while traces of it remain within the legal system, a law that the legal system has largely abandoned. So in, in the book, I, I, I really play up this distinction between the term law and the term legal to flag the fact that courts and police officers and governments, the state, the American state, are a legal institution, a set of, of, of legal practices and legal decisions but Aliites insist upon an ideal of law that differs from and necessarily trumps and needs to come to replace that legal system. Now, one of the key things that you do, uh, Spencer, throughout the book, and especially in the beginning stages of the project, which I found particularly fascinating, uh, which is an argument uh, that you make, uh, in the project, uh, which is that you show ways in which Noble Ruali, in fact, 
provides and presents a theological vision of American democracy. So it's the so it's not just uh, a certain articulation of American citizenship, but in addition to that, uh, there is a certain kind of a theologization of the American democratic project also. What what you call Noble Duali's democratic theology. Um, so I'm wondering if you could uh, explain a bit that uh, part of your argument, especially as it comes up in chapter one, but throughout the project also. And 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 maybe this gets also to the, to the larger question of of conceptual intervention. So so let me answer this in two parts. One, yes, Ali has this way of insisting upon America as a project that is divinely designed and that is clearly not in the present moment the way it's supposed to be. Right. So 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 citizenship has this real cosmic weight to it because folks have to fix this society that is that is deeply broken. Now, at the same time, um, racism, slavery, particularly this 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 history of slavery is interpreted by Ali, is explained by Ali as the responsibility of those who became slaves. Um, so, so Ali's teaching about slavery universalizes, as he says, every nation, by which he means every, every so-called racial group, has fallen into slavery by abandoning their true religion and culture, by abandoning their nationality. So throughout history, everybody has, um, in, in the biblical language that he likes to use, uh, lusted after the gods of, of, of other nations and fallen into slavery. So he explains slavery in this way that really, again, puts the responsibility on the, on the, on the people themselves. Um, this, this was our fault, so to speak. Now, Moving away from that, this perfecting of America is likewise our responsibility, right? Our being the the, the, the various nations that make up this, this polynational, if you will, nation state of the United States of America. Uh, Ali says, uh, again, as the Moors have to hold up a Moorish flag, an American flag, in order to proclaim their rights as American citizenship, so too do all other Americans, right? All other Americans also have their national descent flag, right? So he's got this great speech where he talks about the uh, the, the, the Irish Americans or the, the Japanese Americans, right? Lists these other ethnic groups um, that he sees as operating the same way, right? And, and, and he insists that, in fact, all folks who live in this state of the United States of America have this national descent of their own that they need to recognize. They need to uh, exercise a kind of responsibility to their own community, live under their own vine and fig tree, support their own, remain true to their own. And in this kind of patchwork, a patchwork that in the book I describe as looking an awful lot like um, the way both immigrant settlements and political wards worked in the city of Chicago, where Ali really got a, a, a grassroots political education and became something of a political player, um, by staying true to one's own community in this kind of patchwork, one can then begin to instantiate this theological vision of America that, that Ali insists upon, right? An America that is inherently pluralistic, 
um, and and in which there needs to be uh, multiple nations, but the multiple nations are both um, autonomous to some degree and part of this broader uh, broader political project of the state. Um, so 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 that's the that's the, the the first answer to your question about the theology of the American project. Um, the, the the second answer is to go back to this issue of conceptual intervention when we talk about uh, Aliite faith in America, or or as I say repeatedly in the book, Aliite faith in law. Right, this this vision of an America that isn't perfect, but that could be perfect, that is intended to be perfect, that is exceptional, let's say, and this vision of law as a real metaphysical force and a real ideal that history is arching with heavy human assistance to align with. Um, and, and what strikes me and what struck me fairly early on in this project is Noble Drali is, is a, an important thinker about American citizenship, the American project, about race, about law. And then there are hundreds and thousands of Aliite voices who are also, who are likewise sometimes obsessively theorizing and thinking about these concepts. And so the groups of people that I call Aliites, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in them maybe more than for any other reason, because this is a collection of thinkers who are deeply dedicated to wrestling with um, and articulating uh, both questions about how does race and citizenship and the state and law link together, but also articulating this faith in citizenship and this faith in law that I think is something something quite widespread. Let me let me let me say that one other way. I don't think this is a project. I I I I wanna I wanna I wanna explicitly say this is not a project of looking at some quote unquote marginal religious movements, some quote unquote new religious movements, some quote unquote exotic religious movements that have some quote unquote curious notions about what America is or what law is or how law works. I think it's much more important to say this is a project that's looking at some deeply overlooked creative thinkers who are in fact offering a lot of words about some fairly mainstream political and legal consciousness in America. Claims being made about what law is and how law works that are in fact pretty common understandings of what law is and how law works, maybe amplified in certain ways, right? So that Aliites um, are often very, very explicit about the divinity of law, right? One name for God is Allah, not 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 Allah with an H at the end, but all law, A L L L L L A W. Um, but 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 in those moments of exaggeration or or hyperbole, these sort of spikes in in Aliite rhetoric, if you will, 
I think they're still speaking to something something pretty basic about um, a widespread political and, and, and legal consciousness in America. And that, that, I think, is what became increasingly fascinating to me as I, as I started this project. Um, so sure, I, 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 I first heard of more Science Temple of America members because I was teaching police, and police would come up to me uh, and say, Professor, you'll never believe what I saw on the street today, right? And, 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 and I should also make quite clear that police officers deal with, uh, how do I say this? Police officers deal with people who are uh, in violation of the law or who in need help. Right. Uh, police officers aren't just wandering around talking to citizens. Maybe this is a problem with the, the, the policing system we have in the United States. I'm not going to weigh in on that at this moment. Um, but when police have stories about religious people, they're often stories about religious people is some kind of zoning violation or some kind of other violation. And in, and in these cases, these were students of mine, police officers who were coming in saying, look, we stopped these folks on the street because they had homemade license plates, or we pulled this guy over at a traffic stop and he refused to show a driver's license, or there's this guy that jumps the turnstiles because he says he doesn't have to pay uh, uh, the fare for for the L because he knows his nationality and his nationality is Moorish. Um, several police officers said, you know, we, 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 we got these reports of, of uh, people squatting in buildings that we know they don't own. And we show up to investigate this, this case of squatting and somebody comes to the door. I remember this story. This is a story that, that, that I, I didn't fully understand at the time, but I should have. Somebody comes to the door and greets us with these binders in their hand. And these binders have all of this legal stuff, right? These binders have copies of treaties that were made with Native Americans and this treaty of friendship between the fledgling United States and the country of Morocco. And these folks were arguing that they have a right to use this property because of these, these, these stacks of legal documents that they're interpreting in front of the police officer. That, um, that at the time, I heard rather naively as a story of interesting religious criminal practice, if you will. Um, that's not the best way to read that story. That is, I think, a, a perfect example of the role that faith in this ideal of law plays in Aliite communities, which is, it's, it's a source of potential power and often, almost always, the only source of potential power against the overwhelming power of the state that folks have. So, so I said earlier, Noble Jurali uh, teaches this, this, this beautiful ideal of America as this patchwork of nationalities, and by holding up one's own national descent flag, one can hold up the stars and stripes, and there's a lot of that kind of... Um, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, uh, explicit displays of patriotism, for instance, in, in, in Aliite communities, right? Folks decorate their houses with American flags. Um, 
parade with American flags. This this language of citizenship and 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 this um, ideal of the state, this belief in the state, this this longing for. Uh, participation in and perfection of the state is absolutely central to this history. But at the same time, it would be profoundly naive not to recognize that the history of Aliyite movements and communities and individuals is also simultaneously a history of government surveillance and government oppression and folks who are attempting to negotiate a racism that does not go away and to negotiate uh specific instances of 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 racism and racialization that do not go away when one declares oneself to be otherwise than quote negro black or colored so there's this tension between um belief in the state and the often kind of rottenness of the state and certainly the violence of the state the threat of the state that Aliites are also uh, constantly worrying over and working over and, and, and again, theorizing and articulating about, which again makes them a profoundly useful intellectual resource. Um, how is it that we as Americans believe in the, 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 the promise of America as some sort of equal, plural, just society? In the face of overwhelming evidence of the opposite, right? In 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 the face of a a deep history in which that is not uh, the major motif, how is it that we as Americans believe in the power of um, representative democracy, or to use language that really matters for Aliites, the sovereignty of the citizen? Right, that we, as citizens of this exceptional country, we're we're sovereigns. We determine um, the course of the state. How in the world do citizens of America continue to believe in this? Again, in 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 the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary. That I think is a really really important question for um, for a number of fields, like you said. Right, I mean, it's a legal studies question, it's a political science question. It's a historical question, but religious studies is in some ways uniquely situated to get at it because these are also questions of, of, of the stuff that we call religion and that goes under the label of religion. Um, and in this case, is, is, is explicitly talked about in the register of religion. So when I say there's a mainstream legal consciousness in America that, 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 uh, that sees law as this real metaphysical thing, I think that's true, but for most Americans, they're not going to use this explicit language of, gee, there's, there's religion there, there's faith there, to talk about their legal consciousness. The Aliites are useful for us um, in thinking about the way that people more broadly think about law, precisely because they use this language, precisely because they, they, they speak so much about um, the way that they imagine and, and, and believe, and again, negotiate these, these horrific uh, tensions between the ideals of the state and the reality of society, the ideals of law, and the reality of a, of a, of, of, of a situation of profound injustice that is enshrined and perpetuated by the legal. <clears throat> uh. 
Well, the another key uh, another key category that we find uh, going throughout the book is that of um, sovereignty. And you make a very interesting argument, if I sort of could paraphrase it, that as much as the MSTA might have been critical of American state sovereignty, they sort of articulated a notion of what one might call the people's sovereignty or popular sovereignty that uh, actually is pushing that state sovereignty to, to transform. Uh, and But ultimately, the location of what you call ultimate sovereignty is outside history, is in, is in faith. So, so that in some ways becomes a way to uh, make an argument for human effort and human striving to be the way in which social transformation happens. So in any case, could you speak a bit about the way in which this very charged category of sovereignty is understood by the Allies and how it comes across in their uh, sort of texts and other uh, media and uh, what you do with that category and why is it so important to you for your work? That's a great question. I, 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 sovereignty is uh, a problem. It, it, it is a it is a troubling category. It is a uh, theological category that becomes um, absolute predication for thinking about statecraft and politics and law. And it it it's it, 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 it's 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 more problematic, let's say, um, in the American situation because there there is this attempt at solving some of the problem of sovereignty by redistributing it, right? So that sovereignty isn't out there purely as the monarch, the god king, the tyrant, but in the American experiment, sovereignty is supposed to be vested in the people collectively. That is a pretty idea that doesn't play out terribly well, right? Or that doesn't play out, let's say, in ways that are particularly palpable. Um, I would say this is this is the this is the source of a great and widespread series of what we might want to call American neuroses. Uh, I'm thinking of the people who are currently lining up at uh, outside gun and ammunition dealerships because we're in the middle of a pandemic, um, but maybe also the people who are stockpiling or who for years have been stockpiling food and supplies um, in order to survive whatever catastrophe is 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 coming um, I think in this notion of popular sovereignty there's a kind of disease of American individualism that's rooted in a kind of dis-ease about the fact that the people are supposed to have power and my goodness the people really, don't seem to have the power, right? Um, because if sovereignty boils down to power, um, which and maybe I'm I'm being a little hasty here, but but let's stick with this for the purpose of this podcast. Then there is 
an American state, and that might sound really abstract, but there's an American state that has state actors, state representatives, state agents that are anything but abstract, um, right on the most on the most uh, immediate level, the street level. There are officers of law enforcement who are heavily armed and heavily armored and ubiquitous and networked and surveilling. And to claim that you or I, as a citizen, have a sovereignty that can, te- that can contest the sovereignty vested in that law enforcement officer who might stop us on the street out of suspicion of anything, is, is, is a kind of fantasy, I would say. Now, how does one live with this kind of fantasy? I think, again, Aliites are, are, are um, particularly articulate theorists of a much more widespread American understanding, which locates a true sovereignty outside of these particular agents and and in 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 law uh, i'm thinking i'm thinking here particularly of of uh some of your listeners might know vincent lloyd's um fantastic book uh, black natural law that talks about a particular african-american natural law tradition um of which aliites are absolutely a part um, right, and, and and we could think think much more broadly of this of this of this discourse of saying, gee, there's 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 a real law, um, which is the ultimate sovereign, or in 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 purely theological language, there's a real God who who is the ultimate sovereign. Right, think about the history of say the Jehovah's Witnesses. The state isn't the real sovereign, even though the state has the power to kill us, right, which is the defining act of sovereign power. There's there is there is a sovereignty outside of this and above this that one way or another ultimately will serve as the check on this. And 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 that's that's one way to boil down Aliite belief about law, right? Um this is an unjust and unlawful society. Uh, a violent society. Uh, the, 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 the history of these specific Aliite communities that I talk about is also a history of, of state violence against them. Um, the Nuwabi and Yamasi, maybe most famously, they built a, 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 I call it among other things, a utopian community, uh, a settlement, Tama Ray in Georgia, that the power of the American state, the local and federal law enforcement levels, literally scraped away off the face of the earth. Right there was a there was a spectacular um, raid with armored vehicles and military helicopters, and then the land was seized. And then the the the, the specific nemesis of the community, this local sheriff, drove symbolically the first bulldozer onto the land, and the entire um, elaborate compound, uh, the, the 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 entire elaborate community. Um, was was scraped away and was destroyed. So these are communities that deal with the true violence of the state, right? They're not naive about what it means to talk about the state as as unjust and dangerous. They are aware of the threat of sovereignty in terms of state sovereignty, and yet, yeah, they insist that they insist that there is there is this there is this power that can 
that can put a check on it, that can contest it, and that that power is law. Now, this then leads to um, I don't know two things that are that are worth mentioning really quickly. There's an investment of hope in international law, seen as often often seen as as, as specifically a level of legal appeal uh, above the federal level. Right, so so the Supreme Court makes a decision, but there's this notion in many Alayite communities that then somebody of international law, the UN or or one of these other groups, International Criminal Court, could could then say that Supreme Court decision is itself unlawful. Right, so there's hope for a kind of international law as something like a closer instantiation of natural law, and I think that's. Um, Again, I think that's that's a conception that many of these international legal bodies, in fact, have about themselves, uh, and and certainly reflect that rhetoric in in you know if you read United Nations documents, um, those those documents are often um, laying out in 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 glorified rhetorical terms a kind of notion of of natural law. Um, so that's one way that 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 this 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 desire for locating a sovereignty in the law goes um the other way and and, and to be honest i'm i'm doing some work on this now um in part because i don't think i i i didn't i didn't i didn't tie it up the way that i i could have or should have tied it up in the book if i'd had a few more years to work on the book um and and that is that the sovereignty of the law is also located in the individual, on a on a biological level, um, I'll, 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 I'll try and be swift here, but but I'm looking at some stuff now on um, Aliite anti-vaccine discourse. Um, sort of stumbled into it by accident, but but one thing that's really interesting about some of this anti-vaccine discourse is that there's this insistence on natural immunity as a simultaneous legal and biological category. And, and I, I hadn't read this stuff when I, when I wrote the book. And so the book has a chapter that, that talks about the way that law is, knowledge of law exists in the body from birth, right? And so Aliite thinkers will talk about how, how you, you can know the law in your heart. And this is discourse that's often used a lot to talk to judges and police officers, because while they might work for unlawful institutions and unjust institutions and might themselves be unjust, there's still the sense that as creations of Allah, they, they, they have this innate knowledge if, if, if only they can become conscious of it. Um, this is made more explicit, I think, in Aliite talk about vaccines and immunity, because here there's real insistence that law exists within the body on a biological, on a cellular level, right? Like within our blood, our bloodstream, um, within our blood cells, within our DNA, is this encoding of law? Because law is God. God created us. That connection um, to this sovereignty that is always greater than the sovereignty of the state um, is there. Now, that's pretty for me to say. Uh, once again, what, is, what does that mean in terms of uh, actually negotiating with the power of the state? Um, I guess here I'll come back to that earlier story I told about uh, my, my uh, Chicago Police Department students telling me stories about the encounters they had with Aliites out on their shifts. And 
one thing that happens occasionally when police officers show up to investigate something and a citizen greets those police officers with binders and binders of legal documents and complicated legal arguments in legal terminology, one thing that happens is um, sometimes folks are, are, are successful. Folks are, folks are able to, for instance, continue squatting or continue driving without a license. Um, because, and, 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 and I guess there's a number of ways that we could explain this situation, but this is the way that seems most important to understand this situation. Law has real power. Law talk has real power. Legal discourse has real power. Um, And again, that can sound so abstract. Sovereignty can sound so abstract. But if we ground it in in these very particular situations, you you can get a sense of what I mean, right? I mean, and, and, and we all have our own examples from our own lives, right? We all deal with law. It's not an abstraction. It's also a real thing. Um, and on the one hand, it's a negative, right? Because the power of the state and law enforcement can come down and crush us. On the other hand, it is a leveling force and 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 um a weapon of the weak, if you will, and a way for those who otherwise would not be heard or recognized or be able to influence the state to influence the state, Um, which is a fancy way of saying there is a kind of sovereignty there occasionally. And I think it's important to say occasionally, but I was, I was, I was just at, at Rice University and talking to some, some, some grad students and was trying to explain this dynamic. And, 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 and I said, you know, you, you can go on YouTube. Um, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of great Aliite resources uh, and, and, and artifacts, as you say, um, on YouTube. And, 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 and one of the things you can see on YouTube is, a lot of uh, police dash cam footage uh, dealing with Aliites and others who make these legal arguments, and these legal arguments are not successful. But occasionally, you'll see uh, an argument that's made and that is successful. And, and, and what I said to the grad students at, at Rice was, you know, if I had cancer and the cancer was spread through my body, um, no doubt there are examples after examples after examples after examples of people who, when the cancer is spread through their body, die. I would be far more in that situation, far more invested, <laughs> and spend a lot more time thinking about that one occasional rare example where when the cancer spread through the body, somehow it's defeated, somehow it recedes, somehow the person lives. I think that's how how I think that's how people think about the sovereignty of law too, and the sovereignty of citizens. Um, which goes back to the earlier point of of how do we deal with the tension of living in a state that seems so deeply historically unjust, or where the individual citizens seem so powerless. Um, I think it's these rare occasional examples that are held on to as, as evidence of, of the truth 
of faith in these ideals. Now, that's not unproblematic, right? And, and, and in fact, that could be seen as, as, as some ways deeply problematic. But, but that's the dynamic uh, I, I think that's happening here. Um, the, 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 the clear, real, palpable power that law can occasionally have um, and the way that appeal to law can, in fact, put a hold on the otherwise crushing power of the state. That, that becomes the example that gets focused on as, as, as proof of the power that, that law can have. Did that, did, that, did that circle back to the question sufficiently? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, now, I want to combine a couple of uh, chapters in terms of the next question. It seemed that another key category that was running throughout uh, the book, especially chapters four and five, uh, uh, was this idea of uh, performance, which you either talk about in terms of the legal performance, in terms of you know what the Allies do with legal documents and their choreography in the courts and so on. And then you also talk about the question of performance in sort of a more cultural register in terms of how, in a regime of surveillance, how particular kinds of uh, uh, practices which you uh, uh, categorize as uh, masking, how this whole idea of masking is a way of, uh, again, performing one's religious identity, uh, uh, cognizant of this larger context of surveillance in which these bodies are circulating. So I was wondering if you could combine those two things a bit, legal performance, masking, and this whole idea of performance and its negotiation with state sovereignty. Uh, talk us through uh, that thread a bit. Oh, wow. I mean, uh, yeah, again, again, what I, what I find so useful but also so gripping here is is the 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 stakes that are involved the stakes that are involved in alleyite life um which are the stakes often of survival so 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 when we talk about performance whether that's um legal performance and, and i think of the chapter that you're talking about i, I I'm, I'm really looking at at pro se uh performance in courtrooms or the kind of uh demonstration of legal expertise in front of police officers on the street that i was just talking about um or this this sort of performance of identity in the face of state surveillance, um, by which I mean not just you know uh, Moors, for instance, will dress a certain way often, right? Where fezes are are visually marked uh, to declare themselves as Moorish and thus citizens of the USA. Carrying around flag is is is, is a kind of performance. But 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 I but I but I also am I'm particularly in, in, interested in in um, the way that good citizenship and law abidingness to use two important terms in Ali, I thought are performed. Um, and I'll say more about that in a second. In, in both of these instances, there's really this, there's really this, this, this life or death stakes. This, these are, these are, these are acts that are about, that are about survival. Um, and that's, 
Uh, oh, that's, 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 that's heavy. I'm, 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 I'm almost at a loss of words here, obviously on the podcast. I mean, this, this is, this is a level of, um, engaging in, um, practice that I would want to call religious practice, right? When folks go into the, the, the courtrooms, they're doing an important Aliyite religious ritual. Um, when folks are, are, are speaking to, 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 to police at a traffic stop, again, they're, they're, they're instantiating, they're manifesting their uh, beliefs, their theology, their metaphysics, but they're also often literally as well as figuratively looking down the barrel of a gun, right? The, 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 the power of the state is not abstract in the courtroom or in the police officer. And so this performance has that heightened register to it. Now, now let me give you an example of what I mean by performing good citizenship and law-abidingness to state surveillance. The Washita de Dugdamandia community, um, founded uh, by, a, by a, a politician uh, out of Louisiana, uh, who actually incorporated the town of Richwood outside Monroe, Louisiana. Um, she's, she's, she's since passed away. Uh, her son leads uh, one, one uh, probably the most mainstream of, of the Washita organizations. As with all of these Aliyite movements, again, there's, there's, there's multiple, um, multiple communities and, 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 and a wide range of interpretations involved. But... Uh, the Washita are, 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 are predicated on the claim that they descend from the first settlers into the United States, and, and narratives differ, but, but, but all narratives agree that the land that was uh, seized by the United States with the Louisiana Purchase is actually Washita land, um, and, and uh, uh, Washita activists and thinkers are often focused primarily on, quote, getting the land back, right? There's a desire to, among other things, have a, have a reservation that's recognized by the state where, where folks can live together. Now, long story short, this most mainstream group um, that's led by, or, or I guess mainstream isn't the right word. I mean, the most, the most, uh, uh, the most public group uh, that's led by the founding empress's son, they communicate with each other as a dispersed nationwide group, primarily through telephone conference calls, and they have a history dating back to um, the time of, of the founding empress of some tension with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, an organization that has long been dedicated to surveilling Aliite communities uh, since... Uh, late 20s, early 30s. And so communicating over these weekly telephone conference calls, this particular Washita community called Empire Washita believes, probably rightly, that they are always, when they speak over the phone lines, being listened into um, by the FBI, as well as by other law enforcement and, 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 and political organizations. Um, this discourse is... is faded out a little bit but 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 a few years ago they were they were they were insistent that um governors were listening to them and and uh, representatives from the white house etc 
but sh- it's quite likely the FBI really is monitoring them. And therefore, instead of instead of instead of being fearful or resentful or whatever other options um, could have happened, there is this real focus within the community on 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 the opportunity that's presented by this. Right, the FBI is listening in. Now's our chance. Now's our chance to speak to somebody who is in fact a representative of that state sovereignty that is so powerful. And here's our chance to actually uh, let, let, let these representatives know um, who we truly are, what we're really like, what we want. And again, that sounds fairly vague. What does that boil down to? That we are, in the words of Noble Jurali, law abiders and good citizens. That we have legal claims that we are are resting our interpretations on legal precedent in the case of the Washita. They have their 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 particular understanding of some some Supreme Court cases that they insist upon as favoring their um, their desire to get the land back. So that's a slightly different valence in some ways than talking to the police officer at the traffic stop or talking to the judge as you stand before the judge in court. But it's 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 still a matter of speaking directly to that threatening, powerful sovereignty of the state, right? Standing one square, as 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 Aliites like to say, um, and standing as a sovereign, um, speaking um, directly to that 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 sovereign power. Um, so that's 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 that I think is the is the is the main takeaway here of this of this issue of performance. Um, sure, there's other things to say about um, the way that one marks oneself physically as um, a part, the way that one tries to instantiate these claims of of among other things not being quote um, Negro, black, or colored, but being this this other category of of um, of person and therefore a citizen, um, but all this all this performance also comes down to to dealing with th- the sovereignty of the state as something as something as something immediate as something that can be in the room with you or that can be standing in front of you, um, and that can hear you out or or to phrase that another way or that the law allows for the possibility of you being heard out right i mean that's 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 the language that's used for time in court you you have a hearing um in the book i quote uh, uh lawyer and legal scholar barry sullivan who has this gorgeous law review piece about about the ethics of hearing right what what does it mean that the court is the place where citizens can be heard by the state that's uh that's 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 what's happening in this in in this issue of performance and so it can happen um it can happen almost anywhere um for a community that believes or that recognizes that surveillance is ubiquitous, right? If, 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 if the eyes of the state are everywhere, then everywhere is an opportunity to perform for the state and to speak to the state. 
And again, it's a, it's an optimistic reading on the one hand because it 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 reads it reads police surveillance as an opportunity. Um, on the other hand, it is um, a realistic interpretation because it recognizes the the ubiquity of that of that state surveillance and is, and is an attempt to negotiate that kind of state surveillance. So as a final um, substantive question, uh, Spencer, I want to turn to this whole idea of um, American citizenship one more time. And that's sort of the note on which you end the book. And, uh, you know, oftentimes when we think of movements like uh, uh, the Moorish Science Temple, etc., we tend to think of them as being antagonistic to the American uh, sort of project and so on. But what you show here is that, in fact, there is a certain kind of a way in which there is a push for a uh, more ideal America. And, you know, the the way in which the sort of uh, racism of the American project is brought into view is precisely by arguing for a more ideal or more utopic notion of America. And you, uh, in towards the end of the book, you focus on this very interesting MSDA uh, nationalization ceremony uh, and to sort of weave together these different threads of the book. So let's speak a bit about this uh, idea of uh, American citizenship, of an America that is yet to come, uh, that pervades MSTA uh, thought and the allied actors more generally. And what does that tell us about the relationship of these actors to the notion of American uh, citizenship? That's a good question that I'm now going to subvert. Uh, So... Yeah, there, there's there's this real faith in in a more perfect union, etc., in in the idea that that citizenship is this process whereby um, an unjust society can be transformed into a society aligned with with divine ideals and law. I think it's maybe more important to respond to your question though by by talking about why. Groups like the Moore Science Temple of America haven't been read historically as groups that on their face explicitly over and over are saying that they're invested in these sorts of ends. And 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 that's the piece that I think I've been a little a little light with thus far in this podcast interview, which is these are communities that are heavily racialized and victims of deeply entrenched state practices and social practices of racism. Um, here's, a, here's, a, here's, a, here's a great example. I said that the FBI started monitoring more Science Temple of America, late 20s, early 30s. We have um, files that have been released uh, by the FBI from the, from the, from the 1930s of, of agents going into homes of more science temple of america members again this is this is a case where the movement is really quite diverse and there are some organizations that are more as i said before more public um easier to find and it just so happens this is this is the kirkman bay branch of the more science temple of america and this very public more science temple of america branch is also um, just excessive in its devotion to patriotism and the ideal of the state. So we have these notes from FBI officers who go into houses and 
there are American flags hanging on the wall behind the couch, um, and somebody is 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 crocheting a giant American flag, and there are pictures of the Moorish kids who are out uh, serving in 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 the armed forces of the United States, and the FBI officers are in their reports baffled with how to deal with this, right? They're being told explicitly, we are American citizens. We believe in America. We believe in law. We're good citizens. All of this rhetoric, and it's met with incomprehension and suspicion, and ultimately what it's met with is fear of a black organization. Um, fear of African-American organizing, African-American self-determination, African-American legal knowledge, maybe honestly a fear of African-American citizenship and the discourse of citizenship coming from African-Americans. So that's, that's, that's that's a quick, strong response to why have these communities been misunderstood? Um, these communities have been misunderstood because they've been intentionally villainized. Um, in the group I talk, uh, in the book I talk uh, for a bit about the role of watchdog groups. I have some particular issues with the way that the Southern Poverty Law Center has lumped together in profoundly irresponsible and inaccurate ways, um, Aliite groups with, quote, anti-government extremists, as well as this, this, this awkward um, but marketable coinage of, quote, sovereign citizen. Not sovereign citizen in the sense that all American citizens are supposed to be, according to the Supreme Court, sovereign citizens, but sovereign citizen is something that watchdog organizations and the media and law enforcement um, hold up as, as uh, well, as a synonym for terrorist um, and often interchangeable with that particularly fluid term. So as invested as these communities are in um, the ideals of, or, or, or in, in ideals of, and in perpetuating ideals of America, and, 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 and as that manifests in things like what you mentioned in the question, this, this, this nationalization ceremony, which is akin to a naturalization ceremony where folks um, uh, declare triumphantly at the end, I am a citizen of the USA. That's not, that's not read at, at, at face value. It's not taken seriously. It's not read closely. Um, and a lot of that comes down to the fact that um, these are, these are, as they would say, olive-skinned individuals, right? These are folks who are uh, continually racialized as, quote, Negro, Black, and colored. Now, on that note, too, I should say... <sighs> The role of racism in Aliite negotiations of racism is also problematic. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll be brief on this. Um, I said at the beginning of this of this interview that 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 
Ali's original intervention by saying, look, you are not Negro, Black, or colored. You are this other thing. It preserves those categories of Negro, Black, and colored. And indeed, in, in much Aliite thought, in many Aliite communities, um, those, those categories continue to exist. And importantly, they continue to exist as, 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 as that which can never be a citizen. So a court case that is um, important for Aliite thinkers is Dred Scott v. Stanford, that is often cited as 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 currently applicable law of the land. Right? Aliites will say folks that 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 are themselves identified by the state as African American, they will say, according to Dred Scott v. Stanford, there is this category of person called Negro, and that kind of category of person can never be a citizen of the USA. And I've sidestepped that because I'm not that. I'm Moorish. But their claims, their system um, continues to is is even predicated on the continuation of that racialization and that and that racist categorization. Um, so I said earlier, you know, one of the things that fascinates me here is the way that that, that Aliite thinkers uh, negotiate and articulate and theorize these 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 real heavy tensions. Um, in in American life about uh, political consciousness, legal consciousness, um, there's also a, a dealing with these heavy and ongoing tensions about the legacy of racialization and anti-black racism in America, and Aliites are are often complicit in that anti-black racism, even as they are themselves victims of anti-black racism in the process of attempting to negotiate and escape that anti-black racism. Um, so, so, so I think I twisted your question a little bit because I think maybe ending on that kind of tragic note um, is, is, is more to the point than ending on a note of, of glorifying a, a, a potential or possible America. Um, though, of course, it is so fascinating to me that, that it, it, there's still that faith in the possibility of a perfectible America, um, and that and that there are so many active Aliite communities that are that are still insistent upon still insistent upon the fact that um, they can be full and equal citizens and help turn this society into a fully equal society. So as we are coming to the end of our time, Spencer, I was wondering if you could briefly share with a bit uh, with our listeners about uh, what you're planning as the next uh, perhaps uh, project. Yes, yeah, so so I'm 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 moving on from some of the stuff in 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 this book, and uh, there's still some moving pieces to it, but I'm interested in claims made by a range of religious communities of indigeneity and and I, I I'm seeing this indigeneity as conceptualized in some ways akin to the way that citizenship is is conceptualized by by Ali and and by Aliites in in that indigeneity is a status a legal status for instance it comes with 
legal rights and accommodations, um, recognition, acknowledgement, the possibility of things like reservations. But indigeneity is also seen by the communities that I'm looking at um, as as a process, as 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 part of a, a, a trajectory of enacting an alternative society and an alternative law. Um, that alternative is often explicitly talked about as decolonization. It is understood as as global, as pan-indigenous, as um, involving. Um, Involving, interestingly, international uh, legal bodies like the United Nations, maybe less as places of appeal and more as places from which to draw theory of what indigeneity means. Um, but, 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 yeah. So, so the next project is going to look at um, uh, certain members of American uh, Asatru, uh heathens um, who who use this language, white folks. Let's say who who they might not say that, but 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 that's a that's a, a, a category into which they are racialized. Uh, white folks who use this language of indigeneity and 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 say that they are following uh, the indigenous uh, religious tradition of Europe. Um, I'm looking at uh, the Puerto Rican Taino movement, both on the islands and. Uh, in the mainland, in the diaspora, um, folks who say uh, we are descendants of the the original inhabitants of Puerto Rico, the people who were greeted um, by Columbus and survived uh, the decimation that followed. Um, and I'm looking at, at at allyite thinkers who also use this language of indigeneity and claim, um, according to different uh, historical narratives, that they are um, indigenous folk. Um, I think like this like this project that that we're talking about today the next project started in, in a in both a kind of naive and, and 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 cynical place right when I first heard police officers talking about their experience with Morris Science Temple of America members um, I was, I was, I was cynical and I was naive and I thought that the interesting story here was a story of religiously motivated crime. Um, that was quite foolish. Um, I think when I first started thinking about these comparative claims, these, these claims from, from various different groups, groups that are racialized differently, right? As, as, uh, Latino or as white or as black, um, when I heard these groups making claims to indigeneity, I likewise had a cynical, naive interpretation, and 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 you know my 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 knee-jerk response was that this is somehow about using the law to 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 get something over on the state. Um, and again, that's a that's a very that's I I think many of my projects start with really really foolish um, interpretations, and then um, hopefully. After I spend more time with the material, it becomes less foolish. So, so, so with these claims of indigeneity, it's much, much less about status and rights, and it's much, much more about this audacious imagining of uh, again an explicitly quote unquote decolonial, um, decolonized society, which means for these thinkers, it means trying to imagine. All of the ways, all of the taken for granted, all of the, 
all of the patterns and values and practices that have somehow been shaped by um, colonial presence and imagining an alternative to that, right? So it's it's imagining an alternative um, subjectivity and social relation to capitalism. It's imagining ways of uh, gender relation and sexuality that weren't shaped by Christianity. It's about imagining a kind of law that isn't shaped by Western legal history or tradition. Um, and again, just absolutely audacious theorizing um, uh, from, from across these three really diverse uh, movements. Um, so that's that's the, the the project I'm working on now, and hopefully, depending on uh, depending on the pandemic and various other things, hopefully by the end of the summer I'll have um, a couple chapters on on that. Um, so yeah, the Aliyites, race and law in the religions of Noble Drew Ali by Professor Spencer Dew, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2019 as part of the class 200 series uh, thank you so much spencer for making out the time and for your very passionate uh, uh, engagement uh, with the book and for this really brilliant book that i'm sure will be read widely uh, by scholars from multiple fields uh, really thank you for your time with the new books network today thank you so much i really uh, i appreciated it so this was my conversation with Professor Spencer Dew about his wonderful new book, The Alliance. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and I hope that you will also join us next time for another fresh episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. Uh, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Bye.